when looked at from that that view of humanity as almost infinitely diverse in its variation of like personality and multi-levelness, the Bible itself is a multi-level book. Hi everyone, welcome back to Mind Matters. I'm Harrison Cayley. Joining me are Ilan Martin and Adam Daniels. Today we're going to be talking about approaches to the Bible. And we're going to be talking a bit specifically about the Bible, but this will apply to any kind of religion or source of moral teachings. So it could be the religious books of any of the main main religions or any of the minor religions. But the Bible is the one that's kind of like the touchstone for most of our Western civilization, so we'll be going there because there have been there have been several approaches to interpreting and approaching the Bible from the academic perspective, uh, traditional perspectives, to a kind of I'd say a more modern, maybe not that modern, but uh, still still more recent than other ones approach of looking to the Bible for moral guidance um, for a way to live looking at it for moral advice or support, things like that. So there are all kinds of approaches to that we take when we look at a text like that, a religious text, especially one as uh, influential as the Bible. And by that I mean Old and New Testaments, or the Hebrew Bible for Judaic traditions, or both for Christians. The way I'm going, I'm going to break down in kind of a summary form, a kind of scheme I've been just developing in my mind to look at it. And then we, we might, throughout the show, we'll probably get into specifics on how this all works. But it seems to me that there are <clears throat> two main approaches when looking at something like the Bible. And one is to see it as the repository or source for the truth, for moral virtue, for the way to live, for essentially God's commandments for how to live a good life, how to live, um, period. And then, and that, so that would be looking to that for an external source. As if, in an extreme version of that, as if within humanity, there is essentially nothing there. It's almost like a, a pre-scientific blank slate theory, that there's, or a pre-scientific, um, cynical theory about human nature. So human nature is either entirely bad with no good in it, or there's not really much there and it has to be filled up from the external world or from an external source. So we look to that source to, to provide what we are missing on the inside. So, the, so that would be the extreme version, that there's either nothing there, uh, well, there's nothing there, there's, nothing, there's either nothing good there or there's nothing there, period, and we have to look to that to fill up that empty space. And then a less extreme version of that might be that there's something there, but it may be undeveloped, it may be hidden, it may be covered over with all kinds of um, worldly thoughts and uh, influences. And so uh, a source like a religious teaching, like a religious book, would be to to nurture that bit, that bit within within you, that that kernel or that seed, and to to let it grow. So you're still you're looking at you're still looking at that external source for something to 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 make grow what you can't grow on your own, which might be totally covered over. So that would be like an extrinsic source. 
But within that lighter version of the extrinsic source, there's the implication that there is something within. And I think in some traditions, in our traditions, we see that as kind of like the spark of God, that there's a, that there's a, a soul that has some degree of purity that we are imbued with, or that is part of us. And that seems to imply that there is an internal source to some degree, to some greater or lesser degree that we can turn to. We might call that an inner sense of morality or conscience. Um, in Christianity, there's, in the, like in the letters of Paul, there's the idea of um, the, the law of the spirit, um, something that can be accessed from within that kind of um, might supersede or overpower the power of the law as an external source of, of teachings and morality. And so if we take that to the extreme, when we see this played out in, in Paul's letters too, taking that, that to, to the extreme, then you don't need, then theoretically at least, you wouldn't even need the Bible because if you could just develop access to that source, you could, you could directly access God's will, essentially, and um, moral virtues and, and the, the moral norms of the universe and the, the, the objectivity of whatever that is. So those are those like two extremes. And within that, there's a whole lot of, well, a whole lot of interest for me in, in these different approaches because you can see them playing out in some interesting ways throughout history. Well, either throughout history or if we can take a, a slice of time at the present and you can see examples of all different kinds of approaches going on. And I would, I would even argue that you can see positive and negatives about all of those. So by the end of by the end of our talk today, I hope to kind of give, I mean, it's probably too ambitious, but I hope I hope to, to give a, a picture of that accounts for at least to a small degree that accounts for that variation and what what it is that we actually see when we when we see these various approaches and the the kind of vastly diverse outcomes that are a result of this one book. So, unless you guys have something to, to say, I can launch into getting into some of those specifics. Uh, I would say launch into it and, and then okay. we'll, we'll go from there. So, if we start with, I want to start with that uh, kind of extreme extrinsic version that the Bible is like that external source that people need. That seems to me, well, I'll, I'll, I'll fast forward a bit to the present time and the way um, some, some truths that I would argue the, that the scientific community has kind of established that are in line with even a traditional approach um, or that can be in line with that. So I'm not going like full scientism here, but I think there are some interesting, some interesting things that can be explained about humanity because I think we have, in order to understand what's going on here, we have to have some idea about human nature. Because there is such a thing as, as a human nature. I mentioned a blank slate. Well, Steven Pinker several years ago wrote a good book called The, the Blank Slate, uh, the, something like The Modern Denial of Human Nature, something like that. And especially in the last 200 years, 200 plus years, there have been, there, there have been tendencies in Western philosophy and science to deny the existence of human nature either to, to say that we are a blank slate and everything that, that we ascribe to human nature is just from the outside. And we see, you see this in, a, in an extreme form in behaviorism in the field of psychology in the early 1900s, um, like Watson and Skinner. And their 
beliefs basically that if you just if you took any child and just put them in the right conditions you could turn any child into anything they're totally blank slate there's there's no inherent um, talents or aptitudes or temperaments you can just mold them into whatever you want based on the environmental stimuli that you expose them to and I myself don't have kids but I've experienced with children I've experienced uh, interacting with babies and children and I think for any parent any parent will tell you that's just nonsense um, any any parent has enough common sense to see that that's just ridiculous that they can and you can see this with even with animals, if you, anyone who, who owns a dog who, or who has owned several dogs knows that organic beings like that, especially mammals, have their own personalities. You are born with a certain template and there are limits within, you can, limits within which you can move and adjust, but you're going to have some people who are just born more um, melancholic or more uh, like violently emotional, um, you're going to have personality differences. And these are what, um, what show up in a model like the big five, where you test like openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. You're going to, you're going to see these variations and they're pretty stable over time. So if you get someone who's really neurotic, you're, they're not going to be really neurotic for one year of their life and then just be a totally stone cold, um, like business executive type the next. They're going to be relatively stable throughout time. You might have some variations, but um, extreme personality changes like that aren't common. And even within children, you can notice this very, very early on with children. So there are different personality types. And there are, I, I would say that taking that into account, any, any account where you're dealing with people and how people interpret things or how people react to things, you're going to have to take into account that variation in human nature. You're not going to get, you're not going to be able to achieve a one size fits all explanation or solution to something. So when we look at the extrinsic model for interpret, for interpreting the moral value of a book um, or a, like a charter document or a charter religious document like the Bible, the one-size-fits-all approach isn't going to work. So what I mean by that, the extreme form of that extrinsic source of morality, it tends to go in the direction of, well, it's not, it doesn't come from, or I'd say it, does, it doesn't often come from an individual looking at the book and saying, there's nothing within me, I need this to fill me up. That might actually be a conscious thought, but it, that's not the way it actually plays out, because there is a man, there is that that inner, there is that personality difference that influences them to look at that book differently and to interpret it differently and to to value certain bits over other bits. There is that individual difference in what they give their attention to. It seems to play itself out in here's this source of values. Now I am going to. Because I believe that is true, I am now going to impose that on other people. And this is where you get things like forced conversions and um, like religious imperialism and the idea that I now, I or my group now has the truth and everyone must conform to that truth. So it's using that source as a, a model or a scheme to then 
impose on a person, either an individual or a group, and to make them conform to that. So that's kind of the opposite of taking a, a view from human nature, where you look at, at, the, at the, the, the variations within a community and then kind of um, dole out responses based or, or programs or um, approaches based on that variation. Instead, it's here is the, here is the template, and then it's just force-fitting everyone into that template. And that can show up in numerous ways and in numerous ideologies. That's actually the ideological approach. Here is my simplistic version of reality. Here's my simplistic version of the way the world works and what human nature is. And then everyone must be force fit into that and forced to conform with it. So that seems to be the, the direction of, that the extreme extrinsic approach seems to take, is that imposition of a, an external schematic Onto, um, onto a group or, or an individual. And that is, of course, totally opposed to, to the view that would be the, the, the total, totally individualistic one, where, uh, where you get into almost like a postmodern interpretation where every individual's interpretation and, and approach is equally correct. So we've got these, like, these extremes. And can't remember which uh, which of Paul's letters it is, but basically, I think uh, maybe it was the Corinthians, but maybe a couple of them, where the, the the congregations are getting a bit rambunctious because they think that because the law has set them free, or the law of the Spirit, because Christ has set them free, they now have no longer have to abide by the the law, and just become become a bunch of like hedonistic libertarians, I guess, where they, anything goes, right? So that's that's the extreme that t- things tend to go in. So. When we look at the the light version, which, well, oh, first before that, I'll <clears throat> one more thing about about looking at that at the book at the Bible as that source. When it when when the Bible is looked at as the the supreme and ultimate and only source for something, that's when you get um, some like fundamentalist religious traditions where the Bible is then the only book you need, right? And you, you hear that in some you know, some, maybe some Southern Baptist uh, congregations. Yep. You see yep. that in like Jehovah's Witnesses. You see that and in, in uh, some like Jewish traditions and, and uh, of course, Islamic traditions, you see that. So there's this idea that, okay, this book is completely true. There's the, and it has everything that you could possibly need in it. And that, the, one of the positive things about that, that I've, uh, we were talking about this, in the last week, is that that seems to have over like over two thousand years set up a kind of limit on thought. But limits can be both positive and negative, and they can have you know positive and negative outcomes. So, because when you constrain your thinking to a certain to a certain degree, you can you can refine your thinking to a certain degree. So it seems that the, the way I see it, when I look at Kind of all the rabbinic commentaries and the and the the Christian commentaries on the Bible, they've got this. Their starting assumption is everything in this in this must be true, mm-hmm. and then they really have to think really hard in order to see how that can be the case. And I guess this is maybe why um, why our societies are so legally oriented. Um, I'd have to think about that some more because it's it's very legalistic, right? It's 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 a way of seeing. If, if everything is true 
and this seems to contradict this, then what must the, the, the condition be that reconciles these differences? And so it's actually really, you have to think really hard in order to pull off these kinds of mental gymnastics. Mm -hmm. And so the, the kind of atheist tradition that's developed Ha, ha, we'll see this as like a, a reason to totally reject the Bible because of certain contradictions. And, um, but of course the religious people will see, well, there must be a truth here. And there are all kinds of different explanations for why this might be the case, um, like textually from, from biblical academics. But you see the, just the, the amount of like the man hours that have gone into interpreting the Bible and and making it make sense is just astronomical. When you when you look and like if you look at any rabbi's bookshelf of like the, the all the Talmudic commentaries, it's a lot of stuff. And of, of course, if you you calculated or created a, a Christian library of all the Christian commentaries, I mean, you can you create entire libraries. And that's what people that's what thinkers were devoting their their thought to for thousands of years, and still are. And so. I just wanted to throw that out there that there seems that that I think is one of the interesting developments of this kind of approach. Now you can question the original assumption that led to all of that and even questioning that original assumption then leads to even more of those kinds of analyses to then try to figure out what was going on and that's what gives rise to something like the documentary hypothesis that the Pentateuch wasn't actually written entirely by Moses but oh if you look certain stories repeat themselves, or there's two versions of them, or there are contradictions between certain versions, or there seem to be contradictions within a story, but when you separate out the contradictions, you get two coherent stories on their own. So maybe it wasn't just one person writing Moses, writing this one story, but it was, as the documentary hypothesis goes, that it was four different sources with four different authors, who, which were then combined in a relatively coherent and, I'd say, pretty ingenious way. And so that that thinking that um that belief that that this book is completely true has taken has has sent like the the intellectual tradition of of our society through these kind of remarkable streams to the point where i think that has in that belief has then instilled itself into people that belief in truth which i think is also partly or greatly intrinsic has then inspired all kinds of critical commentaries and creative interpretations and and various things of that sort. And ironically, it is often, if you look at the work of like Bob Altemeyer, it's often the the belief in truth and it, it's holding the, the truth up as an ideal that often leads people into atheism, which I think is is kind of it's ironic and kind of unfortunate, but again, it's one, it's a matter of one of those extremes where a person believes, okay, this must be, this must be true, but I can't reconcile these things. Like I can't reconcile either these passages with these other passages in the Bible, or I can't represent, I can't reconcile this with how I actually see the world or how I think the world is represented. So, so then they whoop, flip to the other total extreme of like militant atheism, mm -hmm. which is a whole other topic, which we've discussed well one possibility is that they look to other frameworks mm -hmm. other uh, religions for guidance mm -hmm. and in some cases uh you hear people 
converting to other religions and saying that's how they found their Zen or their God or their truth. Mm -hmm. So um, th this can go into all different kinds of avenues. Uh, it's a sprawling subject, Harrison. I'm just hearing you lay out some of this, I thought, well, there's this and then there's that. One of the things I wanted to say uh, to underscore some of the points you made about um, the, the more literal interpretation of uh, the Bible was uh, the very well conveyed in the personification of the Robert De Niro character of Max Cady in the Martin Scorsese movie of Cape Fear. Uh, he's this uh, basically a sociopath, psychopath, who looks at the most uh, literal um, passages of the Bible as they pertain to justice and revenge mm. and internalizes all of that and becomes this, this uh, avenging angel or devil um, that, uh, that, that takes all of the, the, the most kinds of subjective or vengeful aspects of, uh, of the Bible and, and allows it to become his framework for uh, the path. Um, by the same token, you know, we have theologians like uh, David Ray Griffin, who have made truth the highest value and has looked to Christianity and religion and philosophy and has embodied uh, for himself, internalized what are probably the highest values that could be found, I think, uh, in the Bible, and has decided that he would devote his, his entire life, it seems. Uh, he's got a prolific amount of work in revealing, uh, you know, what is quite probably the, the truth behind 9-11, for one, uh, but also looks at a number of other issues. And so he has, he has internalized, in my opinion, what are probably the, the, uh, the highest values of the Bible and in, in, uh, in distinction or, or, um, in comparison to the, the Max Cady character of Cape Fear, mm -hmm. uh, just to use a, a rough example. Um, and that is because uh, you can argue that there was something intrinsic to David Ray Griffin, that, that there was something about his constitution, his character, his, his personality, his genetics, what he was exposed to in his environment, which has uh, elevated him, um, which was part of what uh, helped elevate him as a human being to, to bring knowledge and awareness of um, of truths on many levels, so uh, it, it's it's interesting to see how you know a text can be um, extracted from, interpreted, twisted, elaborated on, internalized uh, based on on what is inside of the individual, mm -hmm. and ideally we're we're looking at not. You know, we're, we're trying to find what's best about not just Christianity in particular, per se, but any uh, religion or philosophy that has a angle or perspective on uh, what is true and what is good. And it's a, it's a kind of a never-ending 
uh, pursuit, I think, that requires revision and uh, introspection and a, a more or less um, continuous inflow of information. Yeah, because you have the, um, in the case of the Bible, it's a literary work. Uh, you know, on the face of it, it's a story, well, a series of stories, but it's essentially kind of like supposed to be one big story. And uh, that's one of the great things about literature is the fact that you can write it in such a way that, that, that says things you can't explicitly say. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it calls to you to reach out and to um, find the meaning within it that has direct corollaries to your, uh, your normal everyday waking life. Um, and I guess ostensibly the Bible was written for that express purpose, although other purposes might come into play as well, but, but nevertheless, it's, it still seems to be one of those stories where it was, it was meant to be, uh, a guide for people in in terms of how they live and, and how they view things. So, uh, it's no wonder then that it has, uh, sparked so much, uh, debate and uh, so many people have found so many different things within it um, that are both good and bad mm -hmm. um, because of the nature of you know what it is and what literature is and does. Um, but just to to uh, tie uh, Alfred North Whitehead into here, um, there's one thing that he talked about, which is. Uh, more like observable reality is kind of paramount. What you have to do in your daily life, if something within your story or ideology contradicts what you have to do in everyday life, you have to get rid of the ideology. And so for people who take it as axiomatic that the Bible is 100% literally true as written, well, where in your observable life have you ever seen anything along the lines of what is talked about in that book. Mm -hmm. You you don't see any of the uh, miracles and the direct interventions. Mm -hmm. um, or the life conditions. Or life conditions that are uh, typical within, within the Bible. Mm -hmm. So you have to throw that out just on the sheer fact that this is not observable reality as we know it. Yeah, it needs to be approached in a new way, right? Yeah, so it has to be approached in a different way. That doesn't mean that everything within it is wrong per se, mm -hmm. because again, from a liter literary work, there's plenty of stuff that you can find in there that is valuable, but just that axiom that it is 100% true as written needs to be uh, done away with. And uh, I guess once that's done, then you can actually be like, okay, so what is it about the observable world that we can um, glean from? And that's where David Ray Griffin and Whitehead really come into their own is being able to tease out what is, I guess you might call religiously true mm -hmm. about the world um, just based on uh, our own observable reality, which then like, okay, now we're working with something real, which is a way that uh, David Ray Griffin in his book, 
uh, what is it? God is real, but God is not. Mm-hmm. Um, that he's able to uh, take the critiques of uh, atheists uh, and their critiques of of the Bible and many religions, um, and reconcile that with our observable reality, where you know we do exist, we do have some form of conscience that we can develop or not, uh, depending on our uh, um, pro proclivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then move forward into what is, you know, a more developed sense of of what is true, and uh, so yeah, that was just something that I wanted to throw in here because there's, like you said, Alan, there's there's so much to unpack about your opening montage or monologue that uh, it's montage <laughs> montage that. Uh, that was one thing that kind of stuck out to me as something that is, you know, worth mentioning and bringing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then another one, and I don't know if we'll, we'll touch on this or not, but in terms of like the external versus the internal, you, you might even say locus of control mm-hmm. for people because there, there does seem to be, again, going back to what do we observe um, in our everyday lives, there are some people who seem internally motivated and some people who are externally motivated or have an internal locus of control versus an external locus of control. So it's not clear to me that humanity is like one thing in Mm -hmm. that respect. Like Mm -hmm. it seems that maybe there is a group of people who are more externally or need that external control. Mm-hmm. And then there's another part of the pe- population that need, that doesn't need the external mm-hmm. because they have it within them to uh, to motivate themselves to, to know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. And they don't need other people to tell them that. But because these other people do need that, well, again, kind of like what you were talking about before, which pro- projection, uh, everybody kind of projects their internal state on everyone else. Mm-hmm. So for the externally controlled people, they just assume everybody else is the same way. And yeah. thus it just makes sense to externally control everyone. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of the coin, all the internal internally controlled people project that onto everyone. And they're like, why can't, why do we need this? This right. is silly. Yeah. And thus chaos. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I plan on, I plan on responding to that a bit later on, but first I want to go back to the first part and you were, basically saying that reading the Bible today, you need to make a selection process. You can't just read it and then say, well, I'm going to recreate this exactly in my life or in my community. Then you'd get some some community acting like, you know, Bronze Age people in the desert. It's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And you could make exactly the same argument about Islam and the like interpretations about like the, the fundamentalist interpretations about Islam, about returning to that golden age mm-hmm. of the of the the, the early caliphs and uh, and recreating those conditions exactly, well, it's not gonna it's not gonna work, and it's probably not a good idea. But the the same thing applies applies to the Bible. We just don't seem to have um, substantial numbers of people trying to implement that. You know, like closest is Amish, maybe. Well, no, I'm talking about the. Well, I'll get to to some examples. <clears throat> of what I what I mean by that, um, there's a selection process that needs to to take place, and 
So we mentioned like pr projecting one's own kind of internal makeup onto the Bible too. And I thought you, you put it really well about the, the internal or external people, each kind of projecting their own mentality or you know, personality structure onto others and just assuming everyone is like that, which are both examples of um, a not very well-developed psychological worldview, like a, an awareness of, of human nature, of the, the psychology of people and its, its variation, its variety. So one of the interesting things about the way that this has played out just throughout history and in the present is that variety. So you'll have, um, I, I, I'm borrowing this from, from Lobachevsky from Ponderology, where he's talking about writings like Marx and the different, the different interpretations of uh, a writer like Marx. But this applies to all kinds of different philosophies and ideologies and social movements and things like that, where you can get a few different divisions. Like there are people that will just reject Marxism on the surface kind of instinctually and not really know why they're doing it. They just know that they've got an aversion to it. You've got the people that will read it and kind of like really try hard to, to understand it and to find something meaningful in it and kind of just ignore the bits that strike them as a, a bit odd or maybe murderous murderous or you know, <laughs> etc and they'll, they'll come up with their own kind of rose tinted view of it and then you've got a third category of people that are like yeah i can i can do something with this this is you know i'm feeling this and you find similar similar a similar breakdown of reactions to the bible and so i'd call like the first one i want to talk about is kind of um akin to the last one i mentioned which i'd call the the kind of pathological projection and interpretation. So this would this would be when you have a person who is kind of basically rotten on the inside, who is then um, either making their own selection, so finding finding the bits within the Bible that could arguably legitimately represent their internal state, but then also pathologically interpreting things in such a way that a normal person, like a normal person looking at a certain passage or, or theme or story would say, okay, well, well, they wouldn't be able to understand how this person could jump from A to B, right? Well, how do you get from A to B? And uh, an example of, uh, among many, of someone who did this was Thomas Munzer, who was a, a radical reformer during the time of the Reformation. And I think he was he was in his 30s when he died in 1525, and he led a peasant rebellion, and he had a, um, a like a, a gang of of revolutionary apocalyptic Christians. They were going around like tearing down monasteries, killing monks, taking over a city, and the justifications for everything that they did, and for for Munzer, um, well, he he was kind of he was kind of like the the Christian reformist Lenin of, of his time, like Vladimir Lenin, not John. <laughs> and the justification for everything that he did came from the Bible. So he had, he'd have his Bible verses ready. So, so he could like, he could look to Deuteronomy for, for justification for like a lot of the violence. And when, um, he, he, he used uh, a line from Acts pretty creatively. There's a line in Acts saying something like, uh, you shall hold all things in common. And this is a, um, a kind of command to the Christian community, like maybe the maybe the elect, the the, the saints, the the kind of the 
the enlightened Christians in these small communities that they would basically live communally, um, sharing things, kind of like the Essenes. So there's that, there's that in the Bible, right? In in Acts, and so at, just talking to a normal person, you'd think, okay, so it's kind of like a hippie thing, right? Where you just get together and you share things. Well, the way Munzer interpreted this was like going around to people and saying, give me the clothes that you're wearing or give me your house or whatever. And they'd say, no. And it's like, well, then I'm going to take it because you're obviously not a real Christian because a real Christian Christian would give you the, the shirt off his back. So it's, it was, that was used as an, as a justification for just outright theft going like it, almost a Robin Hood type thing. I'm, but, but not even just stealing from the rich, just stealing from anyone. I'm going to go and I'm going to take your stuff because the Bible says that you should share it with me. If you don't want to share it with me, then I'm just going to take it. And I might hurt you in the process. So just a completely like pathological, pathological, mad caricature version that, that you'd get from like, no one would get that from reading that passage in Acts, uh, either in context or out of context. But there was something about Munzer. He was a paranoid, um, like personality disordered individual who then used those for his own, uh, for his own goals, for his own means. And like he was a revolutionary, he was a revolutionary of his time. So you have an example like that, but then there's, let's go into different examples. So I'm going to, I, I paraphrased that bit from Acts. So now I'm going to read, um, a bit from Psalm 137, starting verse seven. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. So it's a pretty notorious um, verse. Basically, happy is the one that seizes your infant children and and dashes their brains again, you know, dashes their brains out against the, the cliff or the rocks. So anyone <laughs> kind of, you know, looking for, for moral uplifting, you know, in the Bible, coming across that passage, you know, I think their, their eyebrows will probably go up. And there have been inter- interpretations of that, right? So I found a recent one. This is just from a, um, a Christian website, um, gotquestions.com, I think. I think it's, well, it may, yeah. It's a Christian website. So what does this, what does this mean essentially? And the way they put it, um, let's see. Okay. If we keep in mind that the Psalms are songs that express intense emotions, a statement such as happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks should not shock us. The writer did not intend to go out and kill babies. Rather, he desired justice, which required the death of his enemies. Even today, those who have lost loved ones at the hands of others understandably desire the death of those who committed the crime. We must be careful to interpret Psalm 137 in its historical context and apply it appropriately in connection with the full counsel of Scripture. It is normal. It is a normal human desire to seek justice done for enemies to be de- and for enemies to be to be defeated. However, and then it goes into some some New Testament um, quotes on um, you know not repaying anyone evil for evil, which kind of misses the point because, uh, well, I think because read in context, well, first of all, you notice what they said there, um, that it's normal for people to, to have that kind of vengeful emotion for the people who have wronged them, for someone who's wronged them. Well, at least maybe according to my decidedly modern sensibilities, you know, the infants had nothing to do with that. Right. Mm-hmm. And even in, even in the old Testament, when Joshua or whomever is going around destroying everyone, 
Um, oftentimes they will save the, the women and children or just the children or just the women. Um, there's a, a few times when it's when God said, just kill everyone. Um, don't let anything alive or don't, don't let every, anything that breathes stay alive. Kill everything. But so it, it's an odd it's an odd way of looking at that. that that's, that's a result of the Bible must completely always be true. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and we ha- so we have to kind of find a way of looking at this to, to make it work. And that's one way of doing it is just kind of saying, okay, well, we have to read it in context and we have to understand that this is, and I, I think that this is partly true. This is an expression of an, of an intense extreme emotion. Well, yes, it's, it's, in a, it's an expression of emotion on its most base level with like the, the least amount of, of religious spirit possible. It's just, this mm-hmm. is complete barbarism mm-hmm. on the one hand. And, uh, which, you know, they wouldn't say because you can't, you can't say that this is, this is a Psalm, right? Um, and then in misinterpreting it and saying, well, they should have made it, made it explicit that, um, in this commentary, that the, the desire for ren- revenge, even to complete genocide, it's like, well, that, that people, those people did something wrong to me, therefore all of them should be destroyed. And that's, a, a, I mean, back in that, back in those times, that was common. When there were wars between tribes or, or, or you know, pre-nations, often it was a war of extermination. You were battle, you were, you were one group battling another, you might just uh, be completely destroyed. So that's kind of part, partly a holdover of, like we were saying earlier, that that those times and customs that don't really translate over to today, we don't live in those kinds of conditions, um, but some people want to. Um, but there's another option too, aside from that kind of just like weaselly way of, of reading, it, reading it and kind of just sidestepping the issue. And that would be an approach of uh, like an example like um, uh, Augustine or Jerome Christian commentators, Christian theologians, who read that completely allegorically, and they said, "Well, it wasn't. It's not actually about babies or about children. The infants represent evil thoughts. So you should you should dash your evil thoughts against the rock, and the right the rock might be might be Christ. So it's like it's they completely psychologize it and turn it into like a total allegory and say it has nothing to do with children. At least that's the way you should interpret it. Mm-hmm. And arguably, that's maybe that's the way you should interpret it because because if uh, at, at the very least, it, it will inspire some cognitive dissonance if you read it and say, well, well, is this just an expression of intense emotion or is this a prescription? Is this, is this a recommendation? Like, should this be how I respond? Should I wish the death? Sh- should I be happy at the, the slaughter of my enemy's infant child? Um, I mean, this, this is some like uh, Lannister stuff from like Game of Thrones, right? The type of... Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, so it, in a, for a modern mind, it is going to create some cognitive dissonance because they've got at least um, the image itself is disturbing, but then we've got um, an instantiation of that in uh, popular culture, like in Game of Thrones, where that does happen, where um, some some important characters, like entire trajectories are built on a couple of children getting their brains bashed out against a wall. Um, so different approaches, vastly different approaches, right? And <clears throat> that's kind of like the, the cr- it's, a, it's a critical approach. So it's saying, okay, this, this isn't, this, the, you can't just read this on it at its surface level. 
um, there's more to it. You have to use some thinking, some creativity. So it's a, and you're correcting at the same time. So, so Lobachevsky calls it a critical corrective, critically corrective or critical corrective approach or interpretation where you're, you're actively shaping it or reshaping it in your mind to make it make sense. And this is an example of that, that internal locus of control that we, that I mentioned right at the beginning. It's that there's something inside me that says, well, no, you know, this is, I, I, I can't accept that. Right. And so the, the mind goes to these kind of creative lengths to, to then square the circle or, you know, make things make sense to, to make it conform to the worldview that I have. And maybe my worldview isn't completely accurate, right? Maybe, and, and I think it's that doubt that puts, that sends a lot of people into like the depths of existential despair because mm-hmm. maybe I'm wrong. Maybe actually this is the way that it should be. Right. Um, and I think that that's one of the downsides of this, this view of the inerrancy of the Bible is, is that it can lead in those directions. It doesn't have to, but, um, one other, one other way of, well, where did I want to go with that? What I think all of these examples exemplify is like we've been talking about these it's the variety of human nature that human nature isn't a one size fits all affair and that there are different approaches and different needs so you will have people that have a deficit of of a certain sort in regards to human nature and this this will be like a, a psychopath or a, a schizoid or a person with a certain type of brain damage where they they can't process the information of the world in the way they could without the brain damage like before or that they just um, that they would be able to do without the brain damage. So there's almost like a, a, a distortion process that goes on between the, the input of the information in the world and, and even perhaps the, the input from above, like a spiritual type of influence. There's a distortion that goes on so that they don't quite see the world the way that most other people do. In fact, they see it in a, a, almost like a, a, almost a way that is at total odds with the way other people see it. So again, why Munzer could could interpret something in such a way that other people would be, just be like, whoa, how'd you, how'd you get there? Mm-hmm. Right? So there are, there are a variety of different responses and then a variety of different approaches when you, when you take into account that human variability, that, that diversity and variation, that there are going to be people who will look at the Bible not only as a source of um, like personal validation for for their own uh, superiority and their own as a mission statement for for uh, like destruction and domination and taking over and revolution. Like you can, you can if you want to, you can get all of that out of the Bible. Just like you could probably get it out of pretty much anything if you're looking for it. And um, and then you have the people who will be more. Um, more approaching it from that sense of there, there's a constant comparison going out, going on, and this is true for for all humans. There's a there's a constant comparison going on, a, co- a constant valuation process, where everything we've talked about this in previous shows, where everything from basic perception up, and probably beneath that too, there's a valuation process going on. What is important to look at? What is important to literally look at? And then what is important to remember? What is important to say, to do? There's, there's a constant comparison of 
actualities to potentialities in order to determine um, an action or what should be done or what is a better choice that could have been done or that, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There's, but there's a, there's a comparison going on with, in this case, an intangible ideal. And when that, when, uh, when a piece of information is encountered in the world, for in instance, reading Psalm 137, there's that internal comparison going on. Well, oh, just wait a second. If I compare this with that, that intang intangible something within myself, it causes a little bit of friction. And that, that friction is the, you can call it cognitive dissonance, or it's probably a more intense word that's more appropriate. But, and then that will, that will determine uh, different responses too. You, again, you can have the, the rejection response that, oh, this must be all BS, and then I'm just going to leave the church. And, there, and then there's the, just block it out, just, I'm just going to pretend I didn't see that. And, oh, okay, thank God, I'm just not going to think about that anymore. And this is an interesting approach that has been taken by, um, oh, I, I can't remember, we were talking about it earlier, and I can't remember if it's Catholic or Anglican or both, but in their liturgies and in like their, their plan for, uh, for teaching the, the gospel, basically, or teaching the Bible, like multi-year plans for which passages are going to be read um, on which days of the week, and there's a, a sequence, and they, they pair them up, etc. Well, all of the kind of passages like like that one verse that, or those few verses that I read, all the passages like that, like the passages to like, you know, a lot of them to, to utterly destroy and just kill everyone, a lot of that just conveniently gets left out of the services. So we just don't have to talk about it. So a just a regular Christian who's going to Mass, even a devout Christian who goes to Mass, but who might not um, just like read the Bible, may never encounter those verses in their life. And that that cognitive dissonance doesn't need to take place. So it's just it's just a matter of, it's, a, it's a, just a, a slight and gentle airbrushing, right? Well, we're just, we'll, we'll leave it in there, but we just won't talk about it. We just won't bring it up. And uh, so that's that's a creative approach. Um, arguably, it could be, it's probably even, even effective to a certain degree, but when you, when you don't address it, then you risk the, the blowback of, of the, you know, the young person who discovers it for the first time and says, well, how come, you know, my, my pastor never told me about this? How come he didn't explain this? And then the, even worse, if you bring it up to your pastor and then he, he doesn't have uh, a good explanation for you, right? And, um, that, and then that can be, um, that can lead to, you know, leaving religion completely. So the approach that, uh, like I said, I wanted to kind of create a, a, a big picture in which to see all these things. And the way I see that in my mind is to take a, a multi-level approach. And when I use that word, I'm, that's in reference to Kazimierz Dabrowski, Dabrowski, um, Pol another Polish psychologist, that was kind of one of the central aspects of, of his psychology, his theory of positive disintegration, that um, not only is there like variety among humans, it's not, um, it's, not, it's not just variety, it's not just variety on the same plane, essentially, that it's multi-level, that there are actually levels of valuation. So it's not just everyone is equal and everyone is nice, even if they have to be different, we just have to treat everyone equally and see that. Well, it's, no, you know, some people are, are objectively 
better or more developed at something than others. And this come this can apply to personality development as well, the development of character and virtue. You will have people who are vastly more developed than other people. So a a person with that one size fits all psychology, which arguably applies to most of the philosophies that like modern philosophies that influence modern life for a person with that type of one size fits all anthropology or view of humanity, then that doesn't work, right? Because one of the foundations of like modern philosophy is at least modern Western philosophy in the popular variety is equality. You know, you can trace that back to Rousseau and probably, well, you can trace varieties of it back to, to Christianity, but like in the secular, like Western philosophical tradition, everyone is born equal or is equal to some degree. And in the, the blank slate psychology, it's everyone is equal. It's the, the, the inequalities only come about because of the inter, the environmental influences. But Dabrowski argues that no, we have to look at actual human nature. Some people are actually born with more developmental potential, he put it. So there's something about a small group of a small group of people that just they just have more potential for developing um, into like you could one way of putting it would be saints. You know there are there are the type of people that are a tiny minority who for whom that is a potentiality. For others, there's just no potentiality for for sainthood for for achieving that kind of lofty level of of spirituality. It's just you know some people are just better to be lawyers or you know um, or painters or etc you know any kind of profession but then you'll get someone like beethoven who's uh, uh in one of dabrowski's books he gives a case study of beethoven and how so you have an artist here and how he actually was he had let's just put it this way he had immense struggles but he had very high developmental potential so he may have been a jerk and an asshole but he was reaching for something and arguably achieved some some level of achievement by the end of his life. Another, another, uh, off topic thing, but so you have the, the way I see the Bible when looked at from that, that view of humanity as almost infinitely diverse in its variation of like personality and multi-levelness in terms of like potentials and actually achieved levels the Bible itself is a multi-level book. And I think that should be like the approach of it. I'm reminded of something that uh, I heard Jonathan Peugeot, the Orthodox icon carver say in one of his Q and A's, I think it was just, it might've been like a couple years ago. He was talking about church. And I think the question might've been something like, well, why do we need to like, why should anyone go to church? Because like, here we are, we've got the secrets, you know, the allegorical interpretations, we can see the symbolic meanings and all this. Like, what about the, uh, like, why go to church with all these people who don't see this? <clears throat> and Peugeot said something like, well, you have to remember in church, like, there's a community function, for instance, and there's there are grandmas there who have no idea about this, about this kind of stuff, will never look at other interpretations of things, will never look for deeper meanings. This was what you guys were saying earlier is that some people just, just kind of, that's where they fit is to have that external source and not, and not to search for anything higher and it may be, or anything different. And it's, that's okay. 
and they can't do any different. So why force them? That why try to do the same thing that the extrinsic, you know, people imposers do and and force fit that view of human nature and say you should be like this. We're just going to like put you through the cheese grater of um, uh, <laughs> of uh, qualifications for getting into heaven. Um, you, you have to look, if you look at a church, there are all kinds of people at all kinds of levels. And the amazing thing about a church, in my view, is that it is even possible to work. You can have all of these different people and mm -hmm. it may be, it may be that it's at what, what one person might perceive as a relatively low level, because arguably it, it probably is, or it might be. Um, but the, the idea that they could even all get along is pretty remarkable. And that again, comes down to some things about human nature and the, and the way that we actually live with each other and create a social structure from that small group up to, you know, an entire society. There's, there is something like complex and, and remarkable about the way that actually takes form. And so when you look at the, when you look at a, at the Bible as this multi-level document, you will be able to. It, it might come down to to authorship. It may be that there are certain things in there that were that were written or had their origin in someone that was actually like uh, pretty nasty to begin with. Um, of course, you won't get religious communities going in that direction probably. Um, but at the very least, there are things that that. Um, that go in that direction and that can be easily interpreted in that direction, right? By a guy like Munzer. And, but then you'll have other levels too. And, you'll, and if you read the stories, you can see some of the storylines and some of the, some of the themes that are developed. And it's like, oh, here's this person who's held up as this really great guy, but he was actually really evil. Oh, but actually there was some, there was some character development here. And it's like, you can, you can use all the powers of your, of your own observation and what you know about life and kind of see what, might be in there. And then there, there are probably also because, um, because the, you know, the major religions are so influential, there must have, there must have been, and, uh, probably is something very, um, like there's, there's a pearl in there. There's, there is something that, that is the reason for why it, why it is so influential and actually does move people, uh, religiously. And well, yeah. e even if it's, <clears throat> not totally successful on all levels to all people. Uh, the Bible is a strong reminder of other levels of uh, reality mm -hmm. and truth and things that are higher than ourselves. And getting back to uh, Jonathan Pujot and, and the, um, the statements about the church, you know, you have this, uh, this environment that is physically unifying the community, individuals on a local level, and they're not only being unified to, to some degree in their focus uh, or in their reverence for those things that are higher, but they're also physically reminded mm -hmm. in the form of architecture uh, of this space that is above them. Uh, and so this is a, um, this is a kind of a, a, a communal uh, reminder on a weekly basis, uh, if they go to church or temple uh, weekly, of this higher thing. Um, I see 
societies and cultures and movements that are radical getting into trouble when they've reinforced the idea of their own exclusivity, of their own, if you're not with us, you're against us, of their own chosenness, of their own reminders to themselves of their, uh, of their superiority, uh, you know, in, in comparison to other groups and religions and, and seek to, uh, like that, uh, individual Munzer you were describing, uh, to violently enforce their, their code of, of religious belief on others. And, um, in comparison to that, I'm reminded of our interviews with uh, Joseph Aziz and Stephen Hertenstein, where much to my delight, uh, they were talking about meditations um, that that guided guided one's own connection uh, to the ideals, to the to the higher uh, archetypes or or powers or personages of not only Christ, but, you know, Moses and Buddha and, and other uh, figures where, um, you know, and I, I suppose it's, it's debatable as to whether or not meditating on such figures or extending oneself in the, in the direction of these, uh, of these, you know, cosmological presences in the ether is even a valid uh, path, but it, it is darned interesting to me that that these pursuits in in Sufism, in fourth way uh, knowledge, Allah Gurdjieff, um, are inclusive, are uh, are an attempt to personally expand our connections to what may be truest and best about these uh, religious figures. Um, to some degree or another. So um, I think it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's very useful to, to compare um, and to create a framework for ourselves of what ideas and uh, what texts and what practices may be more expansive for ourselves personally may be less limiting, may be more communal, more, uh, more um, conducive to a growth of being, a, a growth of knowledge, uh, a, a strengthening of our, of our character, of our uh, individuation. Um, because <clears throat> we have a, a number of frameworks that are vying for our attention at any given time that uh, can either in some form or fashion limit us uh, via our ideas and our, our what we think is true, or can be something that is altogether uh, enlightening to some extent. So uh, I think that's that's kind of been one of the themes of our show uh, over the over the many months. There are there are movements and ways of thinking, whether they they be ideological in a political sense or um, or in a religious and spiritual sense that are either uh, designed in some ways to keep us boxed in and locked out of um, 
the expansiveness of, of what's possible with ourselves and with others. Uh, and, and those ideas and those modes of being and those connections we can make to certain ideas that can, you know, as you said earlier, Adam, you know, can be incredibly practical in the real world, in our direct experience. So just taking a step back from what it is we've been doing, I, I, I kind of, uh, I kind of see a, a yearning uh, in in this direction, a, a, a stretching, a a, a, a a reaching. Thank you towards towards what is, and because this is a this is a labyrinthine uh, discussion. These are there are so many pitfalls and. <laughs> And ways that we can uh, um, hurt ourselves, or at least keep ourselves limited. Um, that if if it is one of our aims and one of our um, one of our goals in this lifetime to achieve any kind of growth, to achieve any kind of uh, meaning uh, in what we do and how we are and, and what we believe and how we affect others. Um, you know, we're, we have to kind of navigate this, uh, this labyrinth together and, and find what is truly gonna help us uh, in, a, in as tangible a way as, as we can measure and experience. And to roll on with that with that point and to tie in what uh you were saying about kind of the purpose of church um there was a, a talk that tucker carlson gave very recently past couple of days uh where he was in hungary and he was talking about the beautiful architecture that was uh in uh budapest and uh in hungary in general extra marks and he <laughs> thank you uh, he, he was speaking about how beautiful the architecture was and how it was beautiful. It called to you to, um, in, in a similar way that being out in a, a beautiful forest in the springtime with all the flowers and birds chirping calls to you, uh, the, the beauty speaks to you in a way, uh, versus, you know, the, the modern cities or, or modern suburbs where it's just cookie cutter houses and they're all angular and bland and ugly. Um, or at, Soviet apartment complexes. Or Soviet apartment complexes that are drab and dreary uh, if they're still standing. Um, and so I was thinking about you know, what he was talking about with the, with the architecture and, and it's a, it's a wonderful speech and I, I highly encourage everyone to go look for it. Um, but the, there is, there's kind of a corollary there, especially when it comes to churches, right? Because when you see some of these old cathedrals, like Notre Dame, for example, beautiful church, unfortunately, I've never been able to see it myself, but at least from the pictures, it's, it's awe-inspiring. And I think that was the purpose. It wasn't, a number of people have taken a, a very cynical approach to it, uh, to all of that, as it being just a show of wealth. And I think that kind of misses part of the point, which is something like that should inspire you. Going into a place of, of worship 
should inspire awe and reverence. And, and so to call it purely cynical or look at it in a purely cynical way is to miss the point. Um, and so I just wanted to, to say that that's another thing that can be uh, worked within in one's everyday life where you know beauty is important it reminds us that not only are we human but we're part of this beautiful world that we can help cultivate and uh build build up and so all the things that we can do to uh make our make our buildings more uh pleasant and you know beautiful all the better and you know to cultivate a garden that inspires uh awe, uh, or something along those lines. It's, you know, it's worth doing. It's not a pure, purely utilitarian thing, like, you know, a garden with pretty flowers, like what good is that? It, you know, it's, it's more than that. It's about reminding yourself that you're part of this bigger thing and that you have a, an important role in developing and cultivating, uh, yourself first and foremost, but also your relationships and your networks and everything else. It's all this, this wonderfully beautiful, uh, mosaic that, uh, you know, we get to be a part of. And that's one thing that, uh, um, oh, what's his name? George Simon and his, uh, character matters, uh, discussions that he does on YouTube where, at least recently, he he continues to drive home the point that this is a uh, an unearned gift. Life is an unearned gift, and you know we can be resentful and angry about it, and just be you know spiteful and and cruel, mm -hmm. and thereby you know bring hell on earth. Or we can uh, focus on the fact that it is a gift, and we can cherish it and we can nurture it and we can grow from it and develop from it and, and build our characters um, to, to reach higher levels of being, I guess you'd say, um, that you know, then facilitates us, facilitates us to be able to do even more in all of these various respects that I was just talking about. And um, so, yeah. That's, mm -hmm. Good stuff. I'll close out with a, a, a big picture theological view. <clears throat> when I was thinking about this, I didn't realize, I just kind of made the connection while you guys were talking. I didn't realize how much probably uh, Timothy Ashworth's, Ashworth's book had influenced the way I was thinking about it, but mm -hmm. I think it's probably all from, <laughs> from Ashworth, at least to a very large degree. Um, we've discussed his book on the, on the show a couple times before. And if I were to look at this from like a grand theological perspective, it would be pretty close to what he argues that Paul was saying. Because Paul was saying that, that the law that he lived under, so the Jewish law that, that he was raised in, was like a, a babysitter. That humanity, in a sense, was in its infancy and needed that external source of control. Needed those rules to follow. Here is here is the covenant. Here are the rules you must follow in order to 
fulfill your end of the bargain, essentially. And for for Paul, he must have had some kind of experience, like like Ashworth mentions, that that showed him that well, there's there's got to be something more to it than that. And his solution was that the the law as that extrinsic source of of guidance of a, of a path was the the child's version, and that the adult version was to to connect with that that source to to correct connect directly with the the source of good of goodness within oneself and that was through the spirit and through Christ so that um, by establishing that direct connection you don't need the external law you don't need the external you know you don't need that cheese grater coming over you um, in order to 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 realize what is true because you know what is true you experience what is true and what is good mm-hmm. you don't have you know you don't have to have someone tell you um, you can't murder, you know, your, your next door neighbor. Um, you just know that you shouldn't because that's what you feel. You don't want to, because you, you have that connection with, with that objective value. And that connection then is a source of continuing inspiration or revelation, because like Adam mentioned, you can't, you can't find all, you can't find every scenario within a book, within an external source. You can't find, okay, I'm, I have this specific situation. If you're really intelligent and you have a lot of experience and, and you've got that interconnection, you might be able to find a connection. Like you're reading a story you're, and you say, ah, you, know, you have a moment of inspiration based on reading that story, but it's not clear on the, te- on the surface of things. It's like there's not a, a rule in this situation, do this. So for Paul, that's where prophecy came in. Prophecy was directly experiencing and hearing and speaking the word of God, which was designed for the present situation. So we are here, we're in a novel situation, um, and it could even be framed in terms of tradition, in terms of the tradition, with the characters, with the names, with uh, the concepts and the ideas, but it is designed and, and, uh, and spoken for that specific situation. And I think that what you see is that when you have a really good priest or pastor or or whatever, that's what they're doing. They're connect that that they're they're connecting that internal part of themselves, their soul, their conscience, their 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 connection with uh, with God, and they're essentially channeling it through all of their own um, their words and their all of the ideas and thoughts and things that they've encountered or had throughout their entire lives, and they're kind of it's shaping them and it's. Um, it's shaping them for that specific situation, for that specific group or community. And that, so that can apply in a church setting and it can, it can apply on an individual setting. One of the things that always struck me about the, one, of the, one, of the, one of the bits from Ponderology that always struck me was when he's talking about these sorts of things and the, 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 the necessity of, of seeing and accepting the reality or higher realities that there is something higher and above that is expressed through religion, <clears throat> that one of the practical advantages of that is that in a situation like living in under totalitarianism, where you are thrown into new situations that are life or death, is that you can access that inspiration, that that voice that, that says like, no, don't don't do this, or or yes, do this. And spe- specific to that situation, you don't have to think about it and say, okay, 
this is what's going on. If I blah, 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 you know, you're not actually consciously going through the possibilities in your mind. It's just instinct. And that instinct is the, is the kind of the emotional connection, the, 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 the spiritual connection to, mm-hmm. to that ultimate valuing source, the ultimate source of values that says this, this is the way, <laughs> you know? <laughs> when you were saying all that, I was reminded of what Paul says about um, being circumcised and that, you know, mm-hmm. you don't want a, a, or need a literal circumcision, but rather one of the heart or the spirit uh, of love. And I, I think that's one of the most, you know, simple and, and profound uh, things that I've read so far of Paul's that speaks to what you were just saying, Harrison, because, um, you know, we don't have to be, we don't have to wear our, uh, our spirituality in, in the form of a, you know, it's, it's like virtue signaling via mutilation. Um, and 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 trauma uh as opposed to having something that is so embedded um and strengthens that that can be perceived ideally on a on a different level um but is is felt and known with that part of the mind or the instinct as you said that that does have uh, or is yearning to have or or reaching to have this a deeper connection to things true and things higher and things of, uh, of the soul. Which is, that reminds me of, uh, something that, uh, is true with film, like TV and movies. It's like, don't tell people stuff, show them. It's very much the same thing with like, you know, your, your personal philosophy or your personal religion, which I guess really is just a personal philosophy, even though we don't really call it that anymore, is uh, you can tell what somebody truly believes by the way they act, the way they behave, the way they interact, um, treat people, treat themselves and everything else. Your life is a reflection of who you are. And so, you know, live it. Don't just lecture people because no one's gonna listen. No one's gonna care because they're gonna see what you're doing, realize you're full of crap and ignore you. Mm-hmm. So your life should, you should make your life a work of art. Yes. And uh, because otherwise, like virtual signaling is essentially what you're doing when you, when you virtue signal is you are, your life then becomes a work of propaganda. <laughs> um, yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah. So make your life a work of art and not a piece of shoddy propaganda that's cringeworthy. And we'll leave it there, I think. So thanks for tuning in, everyone. See you later.